0: All right, let me invite you to grab your Bibles, take them out, turn them open to the gospel of Mark chapter 10. Stepping into the passage, our friend Spencer read for us a moment ago, Mark chapter 10. We continue our journey. Some of you thought last week's passage dealing with sin and hell was hard. Well, (laughs) we thought maybe we're out of the weeds, but we're not. We step into this text this week, which can be challenging. And before we jump into it, let me let me pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we put ourselves before your scriptures. Would your spirit please search our hearts and deposit your word into our lives so that we might be conformed more and more into the image of your son and to the call we've received from him to follow him through this world. God, would you give us grace to be found faithful along the way in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm grateful for Corey Ottaby and his willingness to serve our body, our our faith family in a variety of ways. Of course, he leads out musically uh, fairly frequently. And I'm also grateful that he and Caitlin have stepped in and begun serving in our kids' ministry on a regular basis as well. But one of the things I'm most grateful for as it relates to Corey and his presence in my life is that he and Caitlin together introduced me to something called Malden Sea Salt. Uh, If you're not familiar with Malden Sea Salt, you're welcome. Uh, write that down, take that note, go to the store and buy some. Malden sea salt is touted as the chef's choice of salt. It's the supposedly the best uh, sea salt, finishing salt, whatever the case may be. Chefs use it, therefore I imitate and I become a poser in my own right in using it as well. well one of the slogans on Malden's sea salt is this. They boast in saying that their salt is as it should be hand-harvested with the distinctive flaky texture and taste that lends a certain new word for the night, piquancy, a certain piquancy, but uh, to, to virtually any dish. Now, if you know what the word piquancy means, that means you're a foodie, right? That, that's your world. You're one of those people. It's a foodie type of word. The word piquancy means to be Pleasantly sharp. And so this sea salt adds a pleasant sharpness to any dish. And all the word piquancy is an appropriate word for foodies, I think it is a fascinating and a phenomenal word for our discipleship as well. There's a sense in which you and I, as followers of Jesus, through this world, that we where we are to lend a certain piquancy, a certain pleasantly sharp flavor to the world in which we live. I believe this is what Jesus is getting after in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when he says, you, referring to his disciples, are the salt of the earth. He says a similar thing in the verse that we ended on last week in chapter 9, verse 50. He says this, he says, salt is good. Salt is good. The piquancy that salt adds is good. But then he adds this warning that's fairly challenging. He says, But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He says a very similar thing in Matthew chapter 5. Right after he says you are the salt of the earth, he issues a similar warning there. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So disciples are the salt of the earth. We are to have a certain piquancy to our lives, adding a pleasantly sharp flavor to the world in which we live. But one of the ways that you and I are tempted to lose our saltiness, which Jesus warns against, is by losing our piquancy, losing that pleasantly sharp flavor to our lives. And the way that that happens in our lives and in our discipleship is rather than being pleasantly sharp, we become either pleasant or sharp. We tend to choose one or the other. And so on some, some of us are tempted to be overly pleasant. And so we curb the edge off of our teaching. We curb the edge off of our discipleship. We curb the edge off of anything may, that may be Considered to be a protest to the prevailing practices or the prevailing opinions of a given culture, a given society, or a given era. And so we become overly pleasant and we lose our sharpness. We begin to assimilate with the world around us to such a degree that there's nothing distinct about us. There's no sharpness to us. There's nothing counter-cultural in our discipleship. But then on the flip side of that, we might not go in that direction and become overly pleasant. Others of us might move to the other extreme and become overly sharp. And so if anybody comes in contact with us, they're going to get cut. They're going to get cut mercilessly because there's such an edge to us. There's such a sharpness to us that we don't know how to temper our our commitment to truth or our commitment to some ethical paradigm or ethical standard. We don't know how to temper that with grace or temper that with any degree of pleasantness. So we become uber sharp, like a ginseng knife. We just cut everything. A few years ago, my sister sent me a box, uh, a gift, and it was a set of ginseng knives. I don't know if you're familiar with the ginseng knives, but there used to be commercials that would come on quite frequently, and the demonstration would be showing how these knives could cut through anything. And when I opened the box that they came in, I noticed that they, too, were in their own little box, but they were so sharp, they started cutting through their own container. And so that freaked me out. That scared me so much so that I sent them back. I didn't want them in my kitchen. (laughs) I know now how dumb that was, but I didn't know then. I was afraid because they were so sharp, I didn't want anything to do with them. Well, some of the ways in which we lose our saltiness happens when we lose our piquancy, when we become overly pleasant with no degree of sharpness or distinction, or we become overly sharp and everything's an offense to us or everything should be protested by us. Everything must be waged war against, whether it's culturally or whatever the case may be, and we become so sharp that there's nothing pleasant and we can lose our saltiness, we can lose our piquancy moving into either one of those directions. So on one hand, we might overly assimilate into the culture so much so that there's nothing distinct about us and our discipleship. But on the other side, we could so isolate ourselves from the watching world that everybody is afraid to be a part part of what we are about. And so we don't want to lose our saltiness in either one of those directions. Because any time we do, any time we become overly pleasant or overly sharp... When that happens, we cease to reflect the Savior that we're trusting in. One thing is true about Jesus' life and his ministry is that Jesus was simultaneously full of grace and truth. In every moment, in every conversation, he was pleasant and sharp. Grace and truth characterized him. And as we follow Him and as we trust Him and as we are conformed into His image, our lives must be characterized by a pleasant sharpness, by grace and truth, so much so that we want to look into passages like this and listen to them and then let them inform and give shape to our discipleship. You see, Mark chapter 10 is a challenging chapter. As you step into this passage, you You're going to find Jesus addressing several areas in which we are tempted to lose our saltiness. Several aspects of life as we journey through this world where we are tempted to lose, to either become overly pleasant so that we curb the edge or too sharp. So we're just cutting everyone and we don't want to go there. We don't want to lose our saltiness when dealing with these types of issues. So what you're going to see over the next couple of weeks, verses 1 through 12, what you're dealing with tonight, deals with marriage and divorce. That's an area in which we are tempted to lose our saltiness. But in the passage right after this, he talks about letting the children come to him, which is a reference to how disciples should care for the least of these. And that's another area in which we are tempted to lose our saltiness by not caring for the least of these and going to the defense of the defenseless. But then in the passage right after that is when Jesus has that familiar and popular conversation with the rich young ruler, and we begin to discover how wealth and materialism can tempt us to lose our saltiness as well. And so we have these areas dealing with marriage and divorce, dealing with how we care and relate to the least of these, and and then how we relate to wealth and our possessions and those types of things. And in each one of these present a challenge, and they tempt us to... Lose our saltiness, and I pray that you and I will be able to walk through these passages over the next couple of weeks and, and let them seize us in the way that they're supposed to. So it begins up in chapter 10, verse 1. Look, look at how it starts. Mark chapter 10, verse 1, and he, referring to Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowds. He's teaching everyone who shows up in this moment. We don't know what he was teaching about. Mark doesn't record a lot of Jesus' teachings to to find a lot of things that Jesus taught in more detail. That's where you go to Matthew and Luke and some of the other gospels. But Mark's more action-oriented, and he only highlights certain things. And so he's teaching the crowds, and then the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders, Of that day and of that era, perhaps the most influential leaders in society, they come to Jesus and they ask him a question. They take this opportunity to ask a question of Jesus in front of the crowd that was quite controversial. Check it out beginning in verse 2. It says, and the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They ask a question related to divorce and they ask it publicly. Trying to trip Jesus up, trying to, according to verse 2, trying to test him. Now that's a very important word. These Pharisees, these religious leaders weren't asking Jesus this question because they were seeking answers. They were asking Jesus this question because they were seeking a certain answer. There's a big difference between those two approaches in asking questions. And what you have to decide for yourself in your relationship with Jesus, how are you going to ask questions in your discipleship? How are you going to approach the scriptures in your discipleship? If you approach the Scriptures, and if you approach asking questions in a, in the, in a way that is reminiscent of the Pharisees' approach, then you are going to ask questions not because you desire answers. You're going to ask questions because you desire a certain answer, and your interaction with the Scriptures and your interaction with Jesus isn't going to change your life. The Pharisees approach the Scriptures in such a way where they are seeking to master the Scriptures. They are very familiar with the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament better than anyone. They know a certain answer to the question they are asking Jesus. And so they're trying to master the Scriptures by showing their superiority to Jesus. And they're trying to master the Scriptures by by testing Jesus's knowledge and awareness and his ability to respond in this moment. You see, the Pharisees were the types of people who approached the authority of Scriptures in their lives not because they were ever seeking really to change. They approached the authority of Scripture in their lives and if they ever came up to a passage that kind of rubbed them the wrong way, they would try to find an alternative explanation, an alternative interpretation. They did not follow the Scriptures to the Scripture's intended end. They were seeking to master the Scriptures, which is contrast to disciples. You see, as disciples of Jesus, when we step into our relationship with Christ, we begin to inter- interface with the Scriptures, and we start asking questions, we do so not because we're trying to master the Scriptures. We do so because we are trying to be mastered by the Scriptures. There's a big difference between those two. We're not trying to master the scriptures so that we can manipulate the scriptures to fit some idea or some answer that we have to our own questions. We want to be mastered by the scriptures, which means when we are confronted in the scriptures, we conform to what the scriptures teach or we conform to what the scriptures reveal. This is how we approach it. Seeking to be mastered by the scriptures. One of the most obvious examples of this happening in the Pharisees' life and example is found in John chapter 6, verse 39. I'm sorry, John chapter 5, verse 39. Listen to what Jesus says about how the Pharisees were approaching the authority of Scripture, how they were reading the Old Testament. This is what he says. He tells them in verse 39 that you, talking to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures were given so that we would learn how to submit our lives to Jesus, be mastered by Jesus, be changed by Jesus, be conformed to Jesus so that you and I might find life. But the only way life comes from the scriptures is if we follow the scriptures teachings in their entirety to the finding the beauty of Jesus. The Pharisees were not willing to do this because they knew that if they come to Jesus, they would have to admit that there were areas in their lives that needed to change and they did not want to do that. They did not want to follow this no-name rabbi who came from a podunk town like Nazareth. That wasn't their style. That wasn't their speed. They didn't want to follow somebody who wasn't raised in Jerusalem, a member of their own ranks. They weren't willing to humble themselves and submit to the salvation that Jesus wanted to give them. And as a result, they missed out. They approached Jesus asking questions in this moment, not because they were seeking answers, but because they were seeking a certain answer. So let me ask you, how do you approach controversial questions and controversial subjects in your own discipleship? How do you approach the Bible in those moments? You notice that Jesus takes the Pharisees to the Scriptures. He asks them in reply, verse 3, what did Moses command you? That's where the conversation needs to take place. Any controversial subject, any controversial topic, it needs to take place According to the scriptures, we have to ask our questions and run them through the filter of God's revelation and the filter of God's instructions in the Bible. This is what Jesus encourages them to do. They ask him this question. He says, well, what does Moses command? How, what is, which was Jesus' way of saying, what does the Bible say? What does the Old Testament teach? That's where Jesus takes the conversation. And when he does that, he's affirming the authority of scripture. And so, again, let me ask you, when you approach the scripture with your questions. And I encourage you to approach the Scriptures with your questions. But when you do so, are you seeking answers or are you seeking a certain answer? Are you willing to let the Scriptures confront you, contradict you, and transform you? If you're not, then you're approaching the Scriptures in a Pharisaic, a pharisaic way and not necessarily in the way of the disciple. In the way, like a disciple. And so, this is what's going on here. The Pharisees are asking this question. Jesus turns their attention to the scriptures. What did Moses command you? And, and this is how he deals with this sticky and sensitive matter of divorce. Remember, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He, they want Jesus to weigh in on this issue, they want Jesus to weigh in on this matter. And Jesus responds with a question. What did Moses command you? What do the scriptures teach? And anytime we come to something like this, we have to handle the subject of divorce and some of the topics related to marriage and our culture today. We have to handle these matters with care. But at the same time, we have to handle these matters with confidence. We have to maintain our saltiness. We have to be able to deal with these matters in ways that, yes, on one hand, takes sin seriously, but on the other hand, we want to extend grace generously. The gospel liberates us to do just that. And so when it comes to a matter like divorce, we want to handle this with care, but we also want to handle this with confidence. We don't want to become overly pleasant. We don't want to become overly sharp. We just want to try as best we can to be faithful to what the scriptures communicate. And when it comes to the matter of divorce, the scriptures communicate some things that make that may affect many of us initially negatively tonight. Because every one of us have interacted with, have experienced divorce on some level in our lives. Every one of us, no doubt, probably have either our own families, our, our friends, people in our lives whose marriages have broken apart, who've, who've went the way of divorce. And part of that is because we live in a culture that that in some ways makes it easy for a person to bail out on the commitment of marriage. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, when divorce started becoming more common, more frequent, more popular, in that moment, the church didn't respond very well. The church, in some ways, lost her saltiness because the church stopped dealing with that struggle. Struggle. And because the church in some ways became silent and ignored it or they overlooked it or turned a blind eye to this happening in the families that were a part of church, all of a sudden these families had kids and these kids were raised, were growing up and all of a sudden they were confused because the church never dealt with where they were. And so these kids all of a sudden become adults and now as adults they're wondering, well, does the church really want to deal with where I am? Because when I was a kid, The church didn't. The church remained silent. The church lost her saltiness. There was an article published even this last week in the Washington Post dealing with this topic, dealing with this issue. And I think it's providential. The Washington Post published an article titled, How Decades of Divorce Helped Erode Religion. And in this article, the author cites a guy by the name of Andrew Root, who's a professor at Luther Seminary, And this guy wrote a book arguing that the church's avoidance of this issue has caused her to lose influence among among the children of divorce. He said that when the divorce rate climbed in the 1980s, many members of the clergy, especially mainline Protestant pastors, stopped speaking out against divorce so as not to alienate struggling congregants. And by going silent on the subject, they didn't offer any comfort to the kids. As adults, Root said, those same people do not believe the church will respond to their adult problems. They're now thinking, well, I'm dealing with depression or I'm dealing with my own marital troubles. The church must not have anything to say to me because when I was eight and dealing with divorce, my Sunday school teacher didn't even say, man, Adam, man, Amanda, that must be really complicated for you. The church just ignored it. The church became silent on it. And now The church, in some ways, has lost her saltiness in the lives of some of these kids who were raised in that setting. And so when it comes to our role today, as we deal with this question and other questions that are going to be asked as we move further into the future, we want to be pleasantly sharp. We want to marry grace and truth. This means, as it relates to divorce, we want to be a church that comes alongside a divorced person, and helps them find joy, helps them find life, helps them find recovery, helps them find healing, helps them find hope in the midst of their divorce. But it also means that we as a church, we want to commit to rallying around the children of divorce and ministering to them and loving them and serving them and welcoming them into our community, recognizing that they're not an inconvenience to us because they don't have a mom or a dad or whatever the case may be. We want to let the little children come to us, according to verses 13 through 16. But then this also means that we, that if, In our church, a couple begins struggling with thoughts about divorce, contemplating going that route. It means we, as a faith family, must apply salt to that situation. We must learn how to ask hard yet loving questions of those who are contemplating going a route that on one hand may be permissible, but on the other hand is not very profitable. So we want to think about this. We want to deal with this. So let's do that. Let's look and see what what does Moses say? What what does Moses command them about their own question? And and it says in verse 4 that the Pharisees, Moses says that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Does that surprise some of you? Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What they're doing in that verse is they're summarizing Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, the one place in the Old Testament that seems to permit divorce on certain grounds. But what's interesting about their response is that the matter of divorce wasn't necessarily the the controversy. People didn't argue over whether or not divorce could happen under certain situations and circumstances. The controversy concerned. Uh, what the, the basis or the grounds for divorce, why was the divorce taking place? That's where the controversy would come. And so you have this moment where they're quoting Deuteronomy 20, or summarizing Deuteronomy 24, verse, verses 1 through 4. And I love this because it reminds you and I that the Bible is a real world kind of book. The Bible is a real world kind of book. It deals with the world as it is. It doesn't shrink back from the struggles and the bumbles and the the wrestlings and the groanings of life in a fallen world. It deals with them head on. And so there's a sense in which we can say that divorce is necessarily conceded in Scripture due to sin. That divorce is necessarily conceded in Scripture due to sin. But the reason why... A concession such as found in Deuteronomy 24 is present. The reason why that's present was not to suggest divorce, but was to help deal with the aftermath of divorce. The concession that they're referring to in Moses' writings was intended to provide protection and welfare for innocent victims. It was the type of concession that said, look, life is going to get messy after a divorce. Here's some things that they need to do. This is how you can order a divorce to limit the upheaval and to limit the fallout of that situation. And so it's a concession, but it is a concession designed to help the situation, not to make things worse. So yes, we can say divorce Is conceded in Scripture due to sin, but here's the deal. Don't misunderstand that. The legal provision outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the legal provision alluded to in Mark chapter 10, that's referenced elsewhere in the Scriptures, Matthew chapter 19, another passage would be 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The legal provisions and the outlines that are presented there, those are not. Understand that those are concessions, not intention. There's a big difference between conceding to the fact that sin exists and trying to help people manage those waters and navigate those waters and then coming to a point to say, well, divorce is God's will or divorce is God's intention or divorce is God's design. There's a world of difference between saying those two, so don't misunderstand that that statement. And so what you find is you look at all these passages and you take all things into consideration, we don't have time to go into all of them tonight, but... Yes, divorce is necessarily conceded in Scripture due to sin, but at the same time, divorce is narrowly regulated in the Scriptures. It is narrowly regulated. In other words, divorce isn't... The Scriptures do not concede divorce for any reason whatsoever. The Scriptures provide us with a couple of instances that says, okay, in these situations, it may be permissible to divorce. One of those is in the case of adultery. In the case of adultery, divorce is possible. You see this, yes, back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, you have this passage I've referred to multiple times. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what's said in, it, in this text. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And the rest of the passage goes on to show how that situation needs to be handled as relates to other relationships and other marriages. But the point there is if he has found some indecency in her, that's the controversy that the Pharisees are raising to Jesus. They want him to define what it means to find indecency in a spouse. And there were two schools of thought in that. There were one school, which was the more conservative school, led by a school of Jewish thought under a leader named Shammai, and, and this was a group that defined indecency strictly on the basis of adultery or sexual immorality or having an affair. So that was one line of thinking, and Jesus, I think, gravitates towards them because they, that's how they, they, they have a little more stricter regulation on divorce. But there was another school of thought that I don't think Jesus supports in any way, shape, or form. But another school of thought would be called Hillel. And the Hillel school would teach and encourage people to get divorced for any reason that you can find an indecency in your spouse for something as benign and absurd as burning breakfast. You burn breakfast you can get a divorce. If you find that indecent, they've lost favor in your eyes, they're not taking care of you in that way, you can write them a certificate of divorce and do away with them. It was an absurd regulation. It was an absurd broadening and an application of Deuteronomy 24 that I don't think Jesus supports in any way, shape, or form. But all that to say, understand that... So, with those thoughts in mind, another way of thinking about the Pharisees' question is to say this. They were wondering... If it was okay to divorce for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds other than adultery, for any reason the the husband in this case sees fit. And so if you just kind of peek behind the curtain and you see the man standing behind you, pull behind the curtain, you see the man pulling the levers, you see the, the condition of the heart in that moment, and you begin to discover something about how. I feel like there's more to their question. And I think the Pharisees were asking this question of Jesus because they wanted to see what they could get away with. And they wanted to be be able to encourage others in a very licentious and open approach to this whole matter of divorce. They wanted to know what they could get away with. So, we can say, again to summarize, divorce is necessarily conceded in scripture due to sin. Jesus even says this in verse 5. He says, it is because the hardness of your heart that he wrote this to you. It was to deal with your sin that Jesus provided this concession. But with that comes these regulations. And one of those regulations is that in the case of adultery, it seems that divorce is possible. And there's one other case you'll find in scripture. I don't have time to go there, but it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 just to give it out so you know that it's there to do due diligence to this topic in the case of abandonment. In the case of abandonment, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there's an instance where, say, one spouse comes to faith in Jesus, becomes a Christian, wants to join the church, do that type of stuff, give their life to discipleship. The other spouse does not support her, whatever the case may be, and so that spouse bails, abandons them. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that in the case of abandonment, he goes even kind of farther than you might be comfortable with. He says not only, is it, not only is it possible, he would go so far to say that divorce is preferable in that situation. It's even preferable for a divorce to happen so that if, if, if a spouse is abandoned, if a Christian spouse is abandoned by a non-Christian spouse, and so he makes that case in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So you have those two regulations, and there are other things that can be said and probably need to be said about this, but understand that these regulations are not suggestions. To say that the Bible regulates divorce does not mean that we should suggest divorce in every, particularly as it relates to adultery. In fact, when we do not suggest divorce and we help a couple navigate through repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, we set that couple up for magnifying the gospel in ways that are amazing. And I know this firsthand because I come from a family where my dad had an affair with my mom. He cheated on her and it about destroyed our family. At first, he did not want to repent. At first, he did not want to even recognize it as sin. His heart was so hard as a result of what he had been doing that he didn't want to listen to anyone. But praise God, there were people in his life who rallied around him and carried saltiness into their conversations that brought grace and truth to bear on him and to bear on his hardness of heart and to show him that what he is doing in this moment is sinful and he needs to repent, he needs to return to the Savior, that he's he's running the risk of destroying all of his significant relationships. And, and over time, eventually, my dad's heart softened up to the words that he was hearing. and And God, by his grace, broke my dad and my dad came back to my mom seeking forgiveness, seeking restoration, seeking healing. And by God's grace, my mom, although it was permissible on some level for her to, to divorce my dad, my mom said, I'm going to do what's profitable in this situation. And she responded to my father's repentance and to my father's confession, and she welcomed him back. And together they started going, undergoing counseling, and they started being proactive in their marriage. And by God's grace, their marriage has been healed. And today, together, they are united. They are reconciled. And together, they are bearing witness to what's possible when you and I don't simply do what's permissible, but we begin to do what's profitable. We begin to think, okay, well, what's best for the other in this moment? And there may be situations where divorce is permissible, but if it's not profitable, I wonder if you can be challenged enough in your discipleship to move past the permission and pursue what is profitable, sue what is edifying, sue what is, pursue what is gospel glorifying. This is the challenge of this text. This is the way of discipleship. So we don't want to go the way of our culture that broadens the regulations for divorce and even encourages divorce on much broader ground than the regulations we find in the scriptures, usually our culture encourages divorce in how a spouse answers one question. They look at a spouse and say, are you getting fulfillment from this marriage? And if the spouse answers no, there are moments when our culture not only only permits divorce, but actually encourages divorce. There was a book written recently that did just this. It's A book called Divorce, How and When to Let Go, became an influential book on this topic. And listen to what the writers say. They say your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it is no longer fulfilling, that's the regulation, pretty broad. If it is no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem solving, growth oriented step, it can be a personal triumph. That's how we are wired. That's how we are conditioned if we journey through this world without the filter of the scriptures. That's how we are wired if we ask all of our questions about every topic in a Pharisaic way, seeking a certain answer, which really is we just want to be approved and applauded for whatever decision we want to make rather than asking questions that seek answers, real answers that affect our lives and bring the gospel to bear on our situations. This is what's going down in this passage, and this is what I pray we would learn to do as a church because ultimately, we've got to ask ourselves, are we more concerned with what's permissible or with what's profitable? In your discipleship, in your marriage, you can broaden that in any relationship or situation. Are you more concerned with what's permissible, what you can get away with, or what's profitable? What would be best for the gospel's Glory in the life of another or in the city in which we live. You see, ultimately, true discipleship is not to be lived out in light of concessions given due to sin in the world, but true discipleship is to be lived out in light of the ultimate divine intention and purpose for all things. This is where Jesus goes in his conversation. He says, Yes, there are concessions due to sin, there are regulations in Scripture. But you don't build your discipleship on concessions and regulations. You build your discipleship on divine intention, on divine origin, on divine purpose. So what he does in verse 6 is he takes the conversation back to the Garden of Eden, back to the beginning. And he encourages his disciples and you and I today, when you think about these matters, you've got to think about them in terms, not of concessions and regulations and permissions. You need to think about them in terms of what God designed and what God set up. So in verses 6 through 9, although the the Pharisees want to talk about divorce, Jesus takes this moment to talk about marriage. And he focuses on the beauty of marriage. And he does so in some remarkable ways. Check it out in verse 6. He says... But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Reminding us of the beauty of marriage, going back to Eden, referencing and echoing Genesis chapter 2. And when he does that, he's telling us something about marriage, and we need to grab this. Because I wonder if we have we take such a nonchalant approach to the topic of marriage, and we need to grab hold of what jesus is saying and what jesus is saying is that marriage is a sacred union it is a sacred union and that stands in stark contrast with a social contract it is a sacred union one that was designed and intended by god back in eden this was the trajectory he set humanity this was the course he set us on in the beginning Marriage is a sacred union that's designed and ultimately defined by God. This means that no people group on the planet, regardless of their era, regardless of their culture, no people group on the planet has a right to repurpose marriage, reconfigure marriage, redefine marriage, chisel marriage down, because marriage is a sacred union that was designed by God in the beginning. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 6. But not only is he saying it's a sacred union, he's saying it is a mysterious union. This is beautiful. He says, not only was it uh, sacred, and since that it was there in the beginning, God made then male and female. And then in verse 7, he says... They shall leave their father and mother and hold, uh, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Get this, and the two shall become one flesh. It is a mysterious union when that sacred union is engaged by two people, one male, one female. A mysterious union takes place so much so that those two persons become one. They become one flesh, one unit. They become an organism, a new family, a new creation. And as this mysterious union, they are stepping into a relationship that is utterly unique from any other human relationship. A relationship where intimacy can be known in a way that can't be known elsewhere. A relationship where vulnerability can be leveraged in ways that cannot be leveraged elsewhere. A relationship where security is found, where security cannot be found elsewhere. It is a mysterious union. And when that happens, all of a sudden, This married couple is able to reflect things about God in a very unique and significant way. So much so that Paul would say similar things. In Ephesians chapter 5, he would make this statement about marriage, quoting the same verse Jesus quotes, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Get this, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all of a sudden, Jesus and then Paul later would elevate marriage and say, this is what marriage is designed to do. It is a mystery intended to reflect Christ's relationship with his church. That is a mysterious deal. That is an unbelievable reality. That is a lofty calling. That lifts marriage up out of the sordid sitcom images you and I are so familiar with. It elevates marriage and puts it on a plane that is unfathomable to some degree. So you wonder, well, how does a couple do this? How does this mysterious union reflect Christ in his church? Well, Paul would go on in that same passage. We we won't turn there, but he says basically two things that I want to give you for some practical direction. He tells husbands, the way that you do this is by loving your spouse the way Christ loves the church. And you may hear that and go, okay, what does that mean? How do I love my wife as Christ loves the church? Well, think about this. To love your wife as Christ loves the church means you are to outserve your wife. Jesus always outserves his church. The church will never outserve Jesus. He's done far more for us in his life and his death and his resurrection than we will ever do for him. And so in the very least, if you as husbands are to love your wives, you are to outserve her, you are to be the lead servant in your home. So you figure out ways to outserve her, taking the kids, giving her breaks, encouraging her to fulfill dreams and ambitions that she has, that may even go beyond the walls of the home. Whatever the case may be, you outserve your wife. But then on the flip side of that, the challenge for wives is just as meaningful and challenging. He would tell wives, and you are to honor your husbands. You are to respect your husbands. You are to honor your husbands. And you're wondering, well, what does it mean to honor my husband? I think in the very least, it means that you are to be more attentive to your husband than any other person on the planet. As the church is more attentive to Jesus and his word than we are to any other voice in society, any other voice in the world, wives are more attentive to their husband's voice than to any other voice they hear. They are more attentive to their husband's needs than to any other person. Wives, get this, this includes your kids. You have a unique role to play in the life of your husband, and your relationship with him is unique and it is distinct from your relationship with your kids. Many marriages struggle because the order and the priorities get out of whack. The kids become the focus. The kids are elevated b- above the marriage. And when that happens, the kids grow up, they turn 18, they graduate, go to college, and the parents are looking at each other like, well, what do we do now? Some try to pick up their marriage at that point and work on it at that point. And some find that it's just too late at that point. And so you have to be attentive now. You have to be serving now. You have to be engaging your relationship and your marriage now. Your marital relationship is a unique relationship. It is a mysterious union that you must hold highly. And then lastly, not only is marriage a mysterious union, marriage is also a sanctifying union in this, you realize how God gives you grace to do the things that you're called to do in marriage, to serve and to honor, to serve and to be attentive, to, do, to show respect, to show honor, to relate to one another as Christ relates to the church and the church relates to Christ. Marriage becomes a sanctifying union because you realize that you don't quite do that perfectly yet. And this is why I think jesus part of the reason Jesus expects your marriage to last a lifetime because sanctification lasts a lifetime growth lasts a lifetime so he's saying stick with it because you have a lot to learn and if you bail too early you're going to cut yourself you're going to cut your sanctification short and you will not grow as deeply by bailing as you will by sticking through and holding in there even during the hard days and the tough moments and the difficult seasons Marriage is a sanctifying union designed to last a lifetime. What God is doing together, let not man interfere with, let not man interrupt, let not man put a wedge between. And so in light of that, you and I want to ask ourselves the question, are we submitting our marriages to the call of discipleship? Are we seeing the relationship between marriage and discipleship? Are we seeing how marriage can help us grow as disciples of Jesus as we engage it, as we elevate it, as we are proactive within it? A guy by the name of James Edwards would summarize this whole passage this way, and I think he provides some hope for those of us who are married currently or those of us who are going through a divorce or struggling with a past divorce. This is what he says. He says, The essential thrust of this passage is the sacredness of of the marriage bond as intended and instituted by God. Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. Human failure does not alter that purpose. The intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fell in marriage with debilitating guilt. The question is not whether God forgives those who fell in marriage. The answer to that question is assured earlier in chapter 3, verse 28. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. That includes divorce when repented of. There is, after all, no instance in Scripture of an individual seeking forgiveness and being denied it by God. The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. In marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, will we seek relief in what is permanent and what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship even in marriage? Will we sunder the divine union of two become one flesh or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God, as a blessing to our discipleship? So with that in mind, let me offer just a couple of takeaways addressing specific people in in our space tonight. If you are single and you're listening in on this message, understand that your singleness is not in any way an inferior status in the kingdom of God. We're dealing with marriage because that's what the passage deals with. And in no way are we seeking to overlook where you are in life. But it is good for you to overhear this conversation and to consider your own life and your future prospects of marriage in light of this teaching. But do not think that your singleness puts you in an inferior status in the kingdom of God. And while I say that, understand that I do not believe marriage is an expectation for everyone. And if you are married, don't give that impression to our single people. Don't give them the impression that marriage is expected of everyone because it's not. Jesus, single. Paul, single. They maximized their singleness for the advancement of the gospel, the building of the kingdom. They engaged fully their discipleship, so to speak. So single people, be, don't, don't hear this as thinking you're in any way inferior in where you are in life right now. It's certainly not the case. If some of you are preparing for marriage, maybe you're thinking about getting engaged or dating towards that end, let me encourage you to elevate your view of marriage now. Elevate your view of marriage now. Prepare for the long haul. Choose wisely and think companionship. When you choose spouse, when you propose or say yes or whatever the case may be, think companionship and nurture that friendship. If you are married, let me encourage you to cultivate a healthy marriage. Be proactive in your marriage. Too many of our marriages are reactive. We only seek counseling when we already hit a rough spot. We only start reading books on how to cultivate a healthy marriage when we're already on a downward spiral. Well, don't be reactive in your marriage. Be proactive. And one of the ways that you can do that in, recent, in, in the near future is on the weekend of October 28th and 29th, Tom and Cheryl Hartman will be hosting one of their marriage conferences And I encourage you to sign up for that, to make plans to attend that. There is limited space, but they're going to be offering these marriage retreats, these marriage conferences more frequently in the future. So take note of that and participate in one as soon as possible. It's free of charge. You just got to sign up RSVP by emailing Cheryl. Her email address is listed in the worship guide. But be proactive. Cultivate a healthy marriage. Go on dates with one another. Have conversations with each other. Love one another in tangible, practical ways. When we're dealing with, if somebody, if somebody in our lives is dealing with divorce, let me encourage you to mingle your call and the call to obedience with the tears of compassion. Mingle the call to obedience with the tears of compassion. Again, be pleasantly salty, be pleasantly sharp, grace and truth, love, weep, serve. Answer questions in ways that, are honest, that honestly reflect what the scriptures reveal. But then if those of you who are in this room tonight, and maybe you are divorced, You've been divorced in the past, whatever the case may be, let me let me encourage you with this reality. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are trusting in Jesus, if you've repented and are believing the gospel, you can rest assured that Jesus is always forgiving and Jesus is always faithful. He is always forgiving and he is always faithful. And that is true for you in your divorce as much as it is true for me in my marriage. And so we press in together, regardless of our situation, regardless of our states in life right now. We press in together, reflecting on the fact that Jesus is always forgiving. Jesus is always faithful. And so to that end, I want to invite you all to come to the table over these next few moments. And as you come to the table, I want you to consider the truth that Jesus is always forgiving. He is always faithful. He is always forgiving. As you take the bread and you're reminded of the body of Christ given for you and you dip it in the cup and you hear the words of the gospel, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins, and you feast on the gospel at the table over these next few moments. So if you're trusting in Christ, you're invited to the table over over these next few moments. The rest of us are going to be joining together at different points and joining Corey in worshiping and responding through song and worshiping and responding through prayer. Maybe you take this time just to pray for your own marriage with your spouse. Maybe you pray for your future marriage. Maybe you pray for your singleness that you would maximize these moments. Maybe you pray because you've been contemplating divorce and you need to take some time to have some heart-to-heart conversation with Christ and perhaps even others in the room, whatever the case may be. We just want to open up this time for you guys to respond as the Spirit stirs things up within you. If you're trusting the gospel, come to the table. In any case, we want to respond now through singing, through praying, and just make this a meaningful time by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you in this moment. As we consider what your scripture has taught and instructed us this evening, I pray that our hearts would be receptive and our hearts would be responsive and that your Spirit now would just... Lead us to respond in ways that are appropriate, respond in ways that are faithful and obedient. God, we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.